we have a bonded winery in each county in Napa and Sonoma on the same crush pad. So it's one of the only places in the world where you have two bonded wineries, each representing a different appellation on one legal parcel. Hello, this is Camille Broderick, the host of Camille's Demi Hour, a show always educating on wine, healthy and delicious food, and the talented people of Nantucket. We will hear from those who create so many of these wonderful delights and experiences on island, from the chefs behind the line to the sommeliers on the floor and the gourmet artisans in between. Welcome to Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Camille Broderick with Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. We are here to talk more wine with a fantastic visitor to the island from Napa Valley. We have Stuart Bryan from Pride Mountain. Welcome, Stuart. Thank you so much for having me. I was going to add a title to your to your name, but I think you do a little bit of everything there or have done everything there. So why don't you tell the audience what uh, your role is at Pride Vineyards? Well, first of all, it's a family winery. So it's true. We all wear different hats and do different things uh, day to day. Uh, my true role there has been in sales and marketing, particularly on a national basis. Uh, we bottled our first wine in 1991, a whopping 300 cases, and I was the sales guy in the family and have progressed now to be uh, what the family describes as the Vintner Ambassador. Vintner Ambassador. Go figure. And a Vintner is a winemaker in some degree? Correct. And so how much do you get your hands in those barrels and in the grapes? Um, I actually do not do hands-on winemaking um, we have uh, Sally Johnson is our technical winemaker and has a cellar crew of five people and uh, really directs all the winemaking and it does an uh, incredible job. Our role really, my specific role is in, as I said, marketing, sales, distribution. Great. So why don't we talk about Pride's history in Napa and some of the other wineries that are around you and maybe give us some geography, exactly where Spring Mountain is and where you're located. Okay. That's a great question. Uh, One of the first things I have to say is if you position Pride Mountain on uh, Spring Mountain, which is the very tippy top of the Mykamas Mountain Range, we're at 2,100 feet elevation and our eastern exposure is in Napa, Uh, County, and you turn around and look to the west, we're actually in Sonoma County. The point being, the peak of that mountain range is the county line, and it divides our property. The county line runs right through our vineyards. So we farm side by side in two appellations, Napa and Sonoma. So some people will occasionally view us as a Napa winery, which is half true. Uh, the The full answer is that originally dated back to the Spanish land grants. And who's around you, and what kind of wines come from that elevation? Uh, some of our neighborhood, and it's a terrific neighborhood, uh, people have learned that to get off the beaten path, as we call it, the valley floor, a lot of people really like to come up and spend a day on, on Spring Mountain. There's 24 bonded wineries. Uh, virtually all of them are small family artisan wineries. Our immediate neighbors include uh, Vineyard 7 and 8, Barnett, Smith Madrone, Paloma, Kane Cellars has been there a long time. Keenan is very well known in the original um, Spring Mountain Winery at the uh, at the foot of the mountain, or just some of them. So we've <clears throat> talked about trends in wine, but you seem to be a real classic, iconic style for California. Big, tannic, cabs, merlots. Talk about your style of wine. Oh, well, thank you. And that was something you, you mentioned, like what we're known for in your last question. Uh, really, I'd say in, in a short phrase, uh, known for big reds. Uh, We do grow uh, two white varieties, Chardonnay and Viognier. Um, If you add up all of our wine production, it's about two-thirds Cabernet, varietal Cabernet, and Merlot. 
and then everything else follows. Uh, the whites, as I mentioned, are Viognier and, uh, and Chardonnay. We're known for making a really stellar Cabernet Franc. We bottle a little bit of uh, Syrah off the property. And one of our best-kept secrets, you probably wouldn't know if you didn't come uh, and visit us and hang out at the winery and see what we really do and we pour the secret stuff. We do bottle a little bit of Sangiovese off the property. Oh, wow. But in a year, we'll bottle 13 wines uh, we have for well over a decade, including one uh, a very small production of a dessert wine that we make each year. So what is the history of the land there? Do you know what was uh, there before the wines, before the vineyards? Uh, Very uh, first planting uh, was 1869. So if we really think in American history, uh, two significant things. Obviously, the Civil War had ended. I mean, that's an era. And then also the Transcontinental Railroad was, was being built. And that uh, in, in, uh, incorporated a couple of things, European immigrants coming in at a larger number, but also, also a lot of Chinese labor, to be very specific. And they built a lot of the tunnels and a lot of the caves and a lot of the wineries. So the original winery was built at this site, site in 1890. So there's an old history of winemaking on this property, on this site, uh, over 1,800 feet elevation. And the simple architectural dis- uh, d- description is a winery that's 64 by 64, three stories, built from fieldstone from the vineyards by Chinese uh, hand labor. So a great old history. And just to roll that story, uh, story forward, I'd love to tell this this story during a winemaker dinner that um, the, uh, the winemaking there lasted, and, and they said flourished, in fact, and the literature described it as a flourishing property until January 1920. You know, I remember, I always joke and tease people, it begins with P, federal government, really bad idea called prohibition. And ironically, after the winery was closed at that time, it burned, suspiciously burned that year. So what we have actually in the lower portion of the property is the original winery is a ghost winery. There are winery ruins of the four walls standing, and people love to go down there. It's, it's a, I call it a spiritual site on the property and really a piece of living history in, in, in Napa Valley on that's, the mountaintop. That's incredible. When were your first plantings then after that? Uh, prior to us, a gentleman named uh, John Gamble owned the property, and the story is in the 70s and 80s, he'd get the itch to plant uh, seven or eight acres of something, and that something uh, was Cabernet, Cabernet Franc, some Merlot, and Chardonnay from an old Winty clone which when he showed up and harvested that wine is really stunning stuff. Um, He had 48 acres of vineyards on the property when we purchased it. Uh, Since that time, we've made a couple land acquisitions on each side of us. We now own 235 acres, of which there are now 86 acres to vine. And we feel we can plant, we're preparing to plant maybe three more acres. So round number will be at about 90 acres. But the majority of that is Merlot is our flagship Cabernet Second. And these other varieties I've mentioned, some Cabernet Franc that's been on the property um, for quite some time, Syrah in four different locations, each on a different soil type, uh, Viognier, and as I said, that little, that special little plot of uh, Sangiovese. So how has the winery evolved over the years? You've focused on Cab mm-hmm. and Merlot, but the winemaking techniques, whether it be organic practices, parceling and fermenting and aging your mm-hmm. your plots differently. What are some examples of how things have changed? That's really a key question. That, that is a great question. And it's pretty much if you could take, uh, the way I describe it is if you could take a quilt and drape it over the mountaintop with all that patchwork and uniqueness and the undulating uh, elevations and things that happen, uh, we have, we've documented six soil types on the property. It's really quite fascinating because you'll go to an area that's really almost like we call it a rock garden. And uh, we joke that the glacier must have stopped there and made it made a rock uh, deposit. And a few feet away from that, several yards away from that, you'll have more of a clay loam deposit. So it's really a mixture of soil deposits at uh, different places on the property. And although, although we have, as an example, 
14 blocks of Merlot spread around in different positions on the property, they're all planted differently. They're different soil type. They have a different rootstock. They're trellised differently. Clonal selection was different. And it really is fun for our winemaker because it's like it's sort of like having you know 14 guys, 14 gals on your team, all with talent that you can draw from because one will provide spice, one provides texture, one gives these great aromatic range. And she really has like almost like this spice box to work with. But it's like roulette. How do you know what to plant where? Uh, you, you, there's hit and miss, and uh, basically you do a lot of research. You have to. We saw what was on the property first, and we saw how it performed, and actually cleared some space and realized that the vineyard plantings there, going back a century, were much greater than what we had purchased. What was initially on what was on the ground. That footprint, the modern footprint, was much smaller. So it had been a sizable vineyard. That land parcel at one time was 600 acres, mm-hmm. and so we'd bought a much smaller parcel, smaller scale farming, and learned to go out into some of these areas with a lot of research and find out if we put this rootstock at this elevation at this exposure you know what 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 would we most likely get so where does the wine knowledge and wine experience come from on your team well, it's a great family. Uh, I wanted to uh, say for sure that Jim Pride, the name uh, Pride is a family name uh, coming from Jim and Carolyn Pride. Uh, they're my in-laws and the founders of the, of the property. Jim made the original purchase in uh, uh, 1989. And uh, the vineyards, as I mentioned, were in place, but we were selling grapes. We acquired a vineyard that was uh, on contract selling grapes to some really notable people. Uh, and I can think I can name them on the air if that's fair. Kerner Rombauer is a large purchaser. Mondavi some smaller artisan producers sort of stood in line to get the fruit off this property. And once we realized, and I, I explained this to Jim Pride, having worked in the wine industry and having several contacts and, and knowing a lot of the personalities that were involved, that it really was a tradition. Once you've sold your grapes after the new year, you go down and taste your wines, the wines that are made from your grapes and their property, sort of a tradition to go and see what you're doing. And we realized very quickly that they were making their reserve wines and their pedigree wines off grapes off this property. Mm-hmm. So after a long day of tasting and probably stained teeth, which is sort of comical because Jim Pride was a dentist and driving back up the mountain. I said, Jim, you really, you really need to, you know, keep enough wine to, to make some wine. He goes, what, what do you mean? I said, well, you'd be a chance to show your pride. And he didn't really think that was funny, but I said, if you bottle a little bit of wine of this quality of fruit and character, it's going to help you showcase this property and continue selling grapes at hopefully in an, an improved price. Do you think well, he didn't listen to you at first? Cause you're the son-in-law. <laughs> well, all, all of the above. Yeah. You know, there's certain conversations you have with your father-in-law that go great. And there's others like, why did I bring that up? But it was a start. It hatched an idea we made in 1991, kept enough fruit for those first 300 cases, a little bit of Merlot, Chardonnay, and Cabernet. And honestly, the wines are stunning right off the bat. And so uh, we had one specific vineyard block, I'll tell you this, that we converted to a vertical trellis to allow more sun, get sun on the grapes was the idea to thicken the skins, bring up color, bring up aromatics. And it was a dramatic wine, which we bottled as our first Cabernet Sauvignon. And it ended up somehow in one of the publications with a pretty uh, dramatic score. And Jim read it and said, it's pretty simple, you guys. Here's the new marketing plan. Go, go vertical in the vineyard and keep the fruit. So what we basically started doing is phasing out contracts to keep more fruit to develop our own brand and, and, and develop Pride Mountain Vineyards. So... What is it like to taste older wines of pride? I read uh, in The Wine Enthusiast, there was an article about it. Yes, it was a 20-year retrospective of your wines. And I think to learn about regions, it's really fascinating to really have that opportunity to taste older vintages. Uh, you can really learn how things evolve. How are wines evolving in Napa or within Pride? Well, you'll see, uh, and this is true of many mountains and many places in the world, uh, it's a different growing environment. 
And the maybe the downside to being in a mountain time is incredible um, weather exposure. You may have erosion. You may have other events that uh, that are really uh, dramatic, and and it forces lower yields. The vines are really stressed at elevation with the exposure we have. So your yields do not match what you see in other growing areas or lower elevation. So you, I always say, you work harder and harder and get less and less. But when it gets but to the flavors, better and better, right? yes, it's that's, for quality. It goes back to the old adage, the old dictum, uh, farming for flavor. So we're willing to take lower yields and get a lower return for the fact that we get this great concentration. Leading to your question, mountain vineyards, because they hold their acidity and their tannin level is, is different. Uh, as long as those are things that are in balance, you get wines that really show ageability, really show longevity. And it's the complexity word, I mean, all the way through. Uh, just before I got here, I was involved in a tasting Tuesday night that got back to our 1991 vintage, and it really stood out in this tasting of great wines uh, of Northern California Cabernets, and it's something that we've learned. These, these wines uh, do have longevity and will hold up a long, long time. I think in our culture, we take a wine home that we've bought at the store and probably have it that weekend. Uh, some people lay a little bit of wine down that lasts a little. We have some some uh, some notable collectors also. But these are wines, if you have the patience, if you can hide a few bottles in your cellar and just pretend that they're not there. Our Merlot will age for 10, 12, 15 years. It's proven. Uh, Cabernet for 20 and beyond. Uh, Reserve Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, if I can mention his name because he was somebody who first really identified this and almost stressed this to us as a point that uh, indicated Robert Parker Jr., and the wine advocate said very early on that your reserve cabs will, will age for 30. In a recent tasting we did, we looked around the room, a lot of educational people, a master psalms, a good group of people. We all sort of glanced around the room, looked at each other, and said, he was close. Mm-hmm. 30 maybe, 35 probably. Some of these wines could go for 40, which mm-hmm. is exciting to see. And it's not just us, our neighbors throughout Spring Mountain, throughout other uh, high elevation areas, we see this longevity. Great. If you're just tuning in, uh, you are listening to the voice of Stuart Bryan. He is the ambassador, Vintner ambassador for Pride Mountain, a very old and iconic winery in Napa Valley. And we were just talking about the evolution and the longevity of some of these wines. And why don't you uh, share with us more uh, descriptions about your Merlot? Why don't you tell us uh, how you talk about it to people and really describe it um, compared to other cabs from Chile, Argentina, Bordeaux? Uh, Merlot is our flagship wine. We like to put that right up in, uh, in front and tell people that it is my duty every day to tell people that uh, our number one grape on the property is Merlot. Now, you may ask other people, and they'll say Cabernet because that's their preference. Uh, they may know about our Cabernet Franc, and boy, we, we wish we could make a lot more of that because it's become what I call the undeclared cult wine of Pride Mountain. People drive all the way up the mountain just to get their hands on a couple bottles of the Cabernet Franc, which is a pretty, very pretty and well-made wine. But going back to Merlot, which is not the easiest grape to grow, so it's very site-specific. And it really performs well, again, at our elevation, in rocky soils, their volcanic nature, and in low yield. And sometimes we'll just pour it for people. They go, oh, no, I just drink uh, Cabernet. And I'll just smile and go ahead and pour the wine that's in my hand. And they say, see, I love your Cabernet. And they'll start a descriptor, and then I'll have to say, I'm sorry, sir. Excuse me, ma'am. I did pour you our Merlot. So uh, a writer years ago called it a Cabernet lover's Merlot. And the point is it's big enough. It almost masquerades as a Cabernet Sauvignon. That's something that we love because, number one, it makes a statement about our viticultural setting and how unique and how intense it really is. And also, when you pick up a bottle of our Merlot, it shows both appellations. 
So you see Napa and Sonoma on the label because the county line runs through our vineyards. We actually harvest wines separately, make them separately. At the point we blend, we show that on the label. So it introduces the concept of location. And I don't want to call it a divided property, but the complexity of what we're dealing with, two Appalachians side by side. You've been working with this winery for close to two decades, and you've been working in national sales. You've seen the wines change and grow. How is the culture of the California drinker changing? How are people responding to your wines now versus 20 years ago? We've been, uh, I'll say many, you know, pinch me, uh, very lucky for many, many years that um, some of our very early success uh, launched our, our retail program on the mountaintop. People were really excited to drive up, see this setting, be on a mountaintop, uh, take in these views, take a cave tour. We have 1,500 linear feet of caves that go into the mountainside. Uh, of course, one entrance, they say uh, a wise man once said, if you build a cave, you should have two entrances, which is a natural for us because one's in Sonoma. And honestly, one's in Napa, and you can do laps if you want. But the point is people just sort of discovered pride for the uniqueness and the complexity of the wines. We think they're reasonably priced. Uh, We haven't really taken ever a major price increase, Uh, and we now have 25 vintages that we've released from the winery. Uh, I think the acceptance has been sort of a standard for us that uh, people, once they lock into the style, uh, our setting, the fact that we're completely family-owned and run a small mountaintop artisan winery, I think they, they think it's pretty cool and, and, and enjoy the wines. A lot of loyal fans, followers, collectors. Yeah, it's been amazing. Friends of decades. Yeah, it's it's really been amazing that uh, we, we work on a mailing list sort of subscription basis and how many people are on the list that have been there for you know a decade and longer. It's just really, really impressive. I, we're, as I say, we're, we're lucky, we're fortunate. And let's talk about your team. When you go to your website and learn more about uh, the winery, everyone seems to be profiled who plays a big role. And like any business, you need your key players. Talk about your team and, and your wife and what role she plays. Uh, excellent question. No, we are really proud of our team and, and fortunate, again, uh, to have so many qualified people that have been with us for so long. One member of our uh, hospitality team in the tasting room is a CIA certified chef and second-level sommelier, and he's been working at the winery for 15 years now and just loves it. We have a team of 14 men that work in our vineyard that are full-time, year-round salaried employees, loyally hand-farming for us. Mm -hmm. Uh, Suzanne travels a lot with me and has gotten involved in a lot of the philanthropic programs. That seems to be a very important aspect of the brand and of the business. Do you want to tell us what causes you support? Well, we realized uh, traveling around the country, uh, even visiting markets like Nantucket, but other places where there's uh, great community outreach, uh, that there's a lot of opportunities to give back through the platform of our winery and other wineries we work with, uh, winery groups, through wine auctions and other programs, uh, is to really have a chance to make a difference in a community by raising monies. Uh, if I can name a couple, I would just um, bet as examples, we're very involved with the V Foundation, Jimmy Valvano, raising money to fight cancer mm-hmm. and have for well over 10 years. Uh, my wife being a cancer survivor, uh, Jim Pride, uh, we lost Jim to cancer. It's it's one of those things that we believe in and think it's very valuable to to uh, have a chance to give back and raise money for those communities. Well, I think we should cheers to that. And look what we have here. Yeah, one of our favorites. <laughs> he was very kind to bring in a bottle that we could taste. And I think this is a, a nice moment to do so for such a good cause. So um, why don't we do a quick little taste before you leave? Cheers to you. And cheers. why don't we talk about the aromas in the glass? Uh, what we have before us is Pride Mountain uh, 2011 Merlot. 
We do add each year a small component of Cabernet Sauvignon, mm-hmm. which for us is not so much about giving weight or depth to the wine, but it helps with aromatics mm-hmm. in the mid-palate. But we have produced the Merlot since our first vintage in 1991. And some of the things that I look for in this wine is just a big uh, dark berry, blackberry component to mm-hmm. it, some black cherry, which complete, uh, very quickly rims out to almost a floral note and some spice that we get mm-hmm. from the uh, volcanic soil. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of fun because you watch these wines as they start to age and they'll develop this spice component. And it's not only the marriage of the French oak that we're using, it's an expression of the spice literally coming out of the volcanic soil. I may say clove, you may say cracked pepper, the next person may say cinnamon stick. Mm-hmm. But all these like baking spices come out mm-hmm. that are really unique to this, this site and some of the soils that we have. I have, I smell cherry, that's my first thing, is that black cherry. But then I do go herbaceous a little bit. I, the mintness there, but that might be that cracked pepper with the cherry. Sometimes when I get spice and fruit, it becomes mm-hmm. floral and herbal to me. It, it, it opens up. Yeah. They kind of those two aromas to in my nose. They open into something green in some way. It, there's a richness to the wine, uh, a weight on the palate that does mimic, as I mentioned, Cabernet Sauvignon. And I do like the finish on this wine because it's a big, rich, lengthy finish. Um, I've said uh, jokingly that I know that our wines, our big red wines, Cabernet and Merlot, have a 20-minute finish. I should note, and this is a, is a, is a valid point because uh, we're tasting the 2011. And in winemaking in California, a lot of people talked about some of the discrepancies, uh, some of the hardships of that uh, vintage. And a vintage like the 2011, which made some really pretty wines for us, they may not be our longest aged wines. I'll say that. Made some really pretty uh, wines with a good flavor range and good complexity. Uh, in a vintage, it was very difficult. And I think the difference was being on a mountaintop, having the sun exposure, having the air circulation, the complete drainage. Uh, we did harvest a little bit later. The crop was a little bit smaller, ended up being a little bit cooler than what we had planned on. But uh, again, in what was considered to be a tough vintage, we made a really pretty wine. So it's interesting that uh, how we found this wine for today and how we got here at the 2011 actually is a very good lesson at looking at the, the intensity uh, and the consistency of this mountain site. Well, my favorite thing about this wine is that it has, like you said, nuanced complexity and texture in its feeling, but it's not a heavy wine. So it has all those great characteristics that you want in a wine, but it, if you added that weight and that real fuller bodied, it might be too much. You, it's, it's balanced in its aroma, its texture, its weight. One of the things we, we like to say is that the wines do have a fair amount of tannin. There's a good tannin load, as I put it, but they're very supple. They're very approachable. Mm-hmm. In a way, we win in two worlds because we release these wines. They go to the table. You can open them and drink them. Um, one thing I like about this style of wine with its acidity that it pairs nicely with so many foods. I'll pair this with lamb and duck, uh, several other things, even mm-hmm. grilled salmon because mm-hmm. it has that range, yes. um, and which is really nice. Uh, but the uh, it, it's fun to watch these wines open after they've been open just 20 minutes. Then you'll leave the room or come back, and then 20 minutes – but um, so the uh, it's fun to have these wines and uh, lay them down and watch them develop. But the 2011, I'm just I'm really happy with it the way it's showing right now. It was an um, honor to have you here. I to wish you. you a fantastic year, and I can't wait to come visit and climb that mm. elevation and be able to taste on site one day. Well, cheers to you. Have a wonderful weekend, and I appreciate your time coming in once again. Thanks for having me. Cheers.
And thank you, everyone, for listening. This is Camille's Demi Hour on Nantucket's NPR station. Tune in next weekend, Saturday and Sunday at 1.30 p.m. Cheers. And I would like to thank my sponsor, Nantucket Culinary. Food is love. Food is learning. Food is fun. Welcome to Nantucket Culinary, a home for sharing, celebrating, and conserving the island's unique heritage. Events, dinners, and classes. Come join us downtown at 22 Federal Street on the corner of Broad and Federal. Come on!